Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Huddenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. Hey, everybody. This is Aaron. And this is Drew. We're excited to bring you another episode of the Arrangers podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in, as always. Yeah, we're, we're excited to bring you a wonderful, wonderful guest today. Let's just have him say hello. Hey, everybody. So that's Alan Baylock, everybody. He's a wonderful, uh, celebrated writer, arranger, composer, best known for his work as a staff arranger for the Airmen of Note for 25 years. 20 years. 20 years. 20 years. 20 years. And also the director of his own Sadly disbanded, Alan Baylock uh, Jazz Orchestra, uh, a big band which recorded three albums, the latest of which featured Doc Severson, yeah. I believe, um, and the first uh, or second was had Jerry Berganzi right. and a few others on mm-hmm. it. I remember listening to those records <laughs> a few years ago. They were incredibly inspiring. And currently, the director of the University of North Texas One O'Clock Lab Band. Yeah. Amazingly enough. <laughs> so, yeah, this is kind of an exciting interview because uh, we're all in the same room for the first time on this podcast. All I've right. been doing a little mini tour and uh, ended up back in Denton where both Alan and Drew are living. So this is really, really exciting. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll just jump right in if yeah, that's well, all right, Yeah, I appreciate Alan. you guys having me over. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we, we knew we had to get you on the podcast. So thanks for agreeing to do this. What we like to start with with most interviews is we like to get behind the arranger and figure out, oh, how did this person start? Because a lot of the people listening to our podcast are either students or kind of getting going. So how did you get started into music? What did you fall in love with? And, and then how did that evolve into writing? Yeah, those are great questions. I had the fortunate place in my family of the last of six kids. And so all my older sisters and my older brother all played an instrument. My mom and dad were both amateur musicians. Uh, my dad was a mathematician and my mom was a nurse. So they were professional people. But there was music in my house all the time. If my sisters mm-hmm. were practicing piano or flute or whatever or singing. And my brother was a trumpet player. So I kind of gravitated toward the trumpet in fifth grade. I messed around on the piano and stuff. But I didn't really have formal lessons until I was 16 on piano. But started taking trumpet lessons and playing trumpet at 10. At that point, uh, I was listening to whatever was in James Way, which was the local, in Southwest PA, rural Southwest PA, the James Way was the department store, you know? So there was some Al Hurt, sure. there was some Herb Alpert, uh, an occasional Maynard. Wow. And so those were the trumpet players that inspired me at the time, because that's all I really could hear. But there was a radio station out of Pittsburgh that I could catch on Sunday nights, and it was real fuzzy, but I still have cassette tapes full of the shows because I recorded them. Wow. But that's really where I got my first introduction to jazz. So I heard Freddie Hubbard and Woody Shaw and Clifford Brown. I'm naming trumpet players, obviously. Yeah. But I was inspired by lots of other folks as well. Did you have a favorite back then? Uh, yeah. I mean, when I when I heard Maynard, that was it. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. and he was always around too. He was one of those folks that you could see live. So right. I was listening to the records and uh, seeing him live, which was always inspiring. I didn't really care. I just wanted to be Maynard Ferguson at that point until my brother brought home the second Chase album. 
And I heard that <laughs> record, and it, it, I still listen to that on a weekly basis. It's, I'm kind of sad to admit, but happy at the same time. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm a huge Chase fan. And, you know, the writing, in, in addition to the, just the trumpet playing, it was just so ambitious to have four trumpets in a, in a rock band. Right. You know? But, you know, in, in um, high school, I guess I, was, um, I did my first big band chart in high school, and I didn't have any idea what I was doing. Um, but I just had a lead sheet, or it was actually a, a piano arrangement of Moon Glow. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Da, 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 That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I kind of uh, pieced it together and put it, uh, you know, just distributed this note to that horn, this note to that horn, strictly experimental. Arranging from the piano? or um, Yes. Ish, yeah, I was playing yeah. it on piano and then writing it out for the, for right the, on. For the instruments. But uh, yeah, my band director was cool enough to play that, uh, and I got really turned on by that because i thought that was really cool to hear your music played and we weren't a great band but uh it was really really exciting so that was the first mm. taste of what was to come that arrangement of moon glow which i still have the uh the band director left you know actually he was my left my <coughs> senior year but uh they had several band directors at my high school and they were throwing out a bunch of stuff including our old trophies and all that stuff i don't know why but uh a friend of mine was living in our hometown, and he saw this arrangement of Moonglow in the trash, and he snagged it and he sent it to me. So I, I have it. Oh wow, that's yeah, incredible! It. It's pretty funny. And then, well, throughout my high school years, I was still playing trumpet. I, I still wanted to be Maynard, but I had long hair and was wearing crazy shirts like Chase was a decade before, <laughs> you know. And uh, you, you can't see him, but he's still wearing crazy shirts and yeah, shoes. Well, this, this one. <laughs> do you, yeah, do you have them. pictures of those uh, <laughs> those days? I do, actually. Pictures. Yeah, I'll show you afterwards. <laughs> yeah, there's some, some stuff we got at yard sales that was, like, totally nutty. And I'm not even sure if they were men's clothes, but we wore them anyway. <laughs> you know, just for the patterns. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I wrote a few more things in high school. One piece featured my best friend Matt and I on trumpet. We called it Chase's Children, you know. Ah. And uh, <laughs> writing some tunes, but but mostly things for specific performances. Um, and at that point, you know, it was the big bands I heard were Maynard, of course, uh, and I was introduced to Stan Kenton's music. Ooh, um, yeah. A bit of Count Basie, but at that point, I didn't know what was going on. But Kenton's stuff was accessible enough to me to listen to and understand on a on a superficial level. Mm -hmm. But that's about it in terms of writing. Uh, I didn't know who Bob Brookmeyer was or mm -hmm. the Vanguard or Maria Schneider was an infant at that point. Well, not an infant, but she hadn't been established yet. And Jim McNeely, I hadn't heard of him. Any of the heavy ones that, that I really respect and listen to now. I did have an Airman of Note record called Crystal Gardens. It was a double CD all written by Mike Crotty. So Mike Crotty Ooh. was a big influence. Yeah. That's still one of my favorites. Me too. Yeah, yeah. I love Mike Crotty. He's such a great writer. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And a multi-instrumentalist, which always makes me mad. But, you know. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Plays trumpet as well as all the reeds. Oh, and yeah. piano and... Right. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Et cetera. But beautiful guy, great writer, who really turned into uh, one of my... The most influential people in my life. Wow. Um, so I'd heard that big band also. Um, but I was really just going from scratch. I didn't have too much training. I did get my undergrad at Shenandoah. It was a Shenandoah Conservatory at the time. And that was really when I started getting into writing and learning in a formal way, like learning techniques and stuff that I still use today. And I remember the day uh, that I bought Inside the Score, yeah. which was life-changing you know, yeah, right. for my yeah. first semester ranging class. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a book that's so deep, I can still turn to it and, and learn. 
But again, like like Kenton's music, there was there was a part of it that was accessible right away, even though it was really deep at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to write a lot in undergrad, uh, thanks to Bob Larson, the head of the jazz department. And I wrote some bad stuff, some stuff that just didn't work, but he was always very encouraging. And That's great. Yeah, and I was able to experiment. And my senior year, I wrote a, a suite called Sweet for Jazz Orchestra, where I felt like I was really pushing myself. Sweet, man. Yeah, yeah, sweet. <laughs> Yeah, it was a pretty sweet life. Um, <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist that. <laughs> I wish I would have called it Sweet Time Sweet because that, of course, that Kenny Wheeler thing is amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, I was finishing up my undergrad and I had met my future wife, Maria, at that point, And she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, if you're going to go anywhere to grad school, where would you go? And I thought, that's easy. I'm gonna, I want to go to North Texas. Mm-hmm. I'd heard the, the one o'clock in 86. So that was my sophomore year of undergrad. They came through on a tour. And I remember uh, Mag- Magnus Brew playing trumpet, Stefan Carlson, and uh, Steve Wiest. It was a great band. But more than anything, I just remember Neil Slater. I remember mm-hmm. Neil Slater on that stage and the, the presence that he commanded. And the band mm-hmm. was incredible. Um, so, yeah, I said, oh, I want to go to North Texas. So Maria got me an application, came down to Denton to get my master's. And I was still playing, but I, I had gone through some pretty severe amateur difficulties. So when I got to Denton... I was in rough shape, really, trumpet playing wise. Mm. Long story, but I'll make it short. My wisdom teeth came in, shifted my front two teeth, oh, and no. everything was all whack. So I went through an amateur change here my first semester. Um, I lost about a fourth of my range, but I got a much bigger sound. But I was I, I was only really interested in writing at that point, right? So, sure. Which was very right. fortunate. Mm-hmm. And Paris Rutherford was the guy, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I learned a lot from Paris. I learned a lot from Neil. I learned a lot from just being able to experiment with the one o'clock as well. When you were going to North Texas and experimenting with writing stuff, what kind of lessons did you learn from just kind of putting stuff in front of the band and and hearing it back? Well, this was all pre-finale. So we had the advantage of hearing your music for the first time with real musicians. Mm. Of course, our hands hurt after writing a chart because that was brutal. (laughs) It was just brutal, all that copy work. But a lesson I would learn would be actually like what it really sounded like. Like now, myself included, I think we get stuck on the playback and Mm -hmm. make decisions based on the finale or Sibelius playback, which isn't wise. Mm -hmm. There are some things you can learn from the playback, but orchestration or balance, things like that, you can't learn until you actually hear it. But yeah, I I learned things that, that worked, things that I thought would work that didn't work. I would learn the difference between what it sounded like in real life and what it, I thought it sounded like in my head. Mm-hmm. And then I would go back specifically. I did a lot, ton of score study, and I still do. I had a bunch of Mike Crotty scores, and when I was here at UNT as a student, I mean, I had access to the whole library of all those decades of great charts. Right. So I would specifically look for how that arranger or composer got that sound that they achieved. And then, of course, I would try to get the same sound and then eventually, you know, you try to get a different sound. But Burt Ligon's stuff was really meaningful for me my first couple years. Uh, and my first tune that the One O'Clock recorded called Quotient, it sounds like Burt Ligon. I guess I'm proud to say because, you know, he was, he was a great model, role model in that sense. But I would learn how to interact with the musicians, how to take the hits because there were several charts I took in that didn't work. And it was really hard for my ego. I remember one particular tune I took in I wrote for Brad Turner who's a wonderful, another multi-instrumental instrumentalist and writer. Mm-hmm. He was one of the superstars when I was here as a student. And I called it BT for Brad Turner, but I called it Beautiful Thing. 
Uh, it was a ballad, and it had a real expansive melody, kind of like a Kenny Wheeler thing. Uh, the first interval was a, you know, ascending major seventh, and it just jumped all over the place. And I thought, it, I, I was proud of it, you know, I thought it was nice, and took it into the, to the one o'clock, and crickets, you know. Ooh. And you could tell by Neil's reaction that it wasn't going to work. And I recorded all of my rehearsals. I still have them at the house. I have cassette wow. tapes. Oh, that's great. So that's another thing. I'll just back up real quick. Sure. Another thing I learned from listening to those charts, I learned after the re- the rehearsal. Right. Because it's a little bit like wedding day, man. You know, <laughs> it's so exciting being in there. Right. And you're not really aware of everything going on. Right. So I go back and listen to it, and you're like, oh, crap, I missed that. Approach it more objectively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can hear the yeah. wrong notes and, and other things as well. But yeah, obviously it wasn't working, and I was so disappointed. Brad was doing the three o'clock at that time. So I had the one o'clock pass in and I took it into the three o'clock to try to, you know, salvage it. Yeah. It didn't work there either. Uh, so I just uh, had to eat it, you know. Too it, difficult or? No, it just, uh, it wasn't, it was a little bit too vanilla. Um, the, the, the A section was okay. Cause, uh, boo dee dee doo, dee dee doo. You know, it was organic and melodic, but the bridge was just dumb. It was just a bunch of two fives and, mm. uh, Going into funny places, and then getting back to the A section was a, a downer. So it, uh, the the tune itself wasn't very solid. Sure. So the big band chart didn't have a chance. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. And I, I another thing I've discovered was you know through the years, and you all know it also. I mean, the the tunes that are, are arrangeable are the ones that are solid in themselves. Sure. Right. It's really hard to arrange a bad tune. Right. And make a good arrangement. You know, that's actually a cool question when you're composing a tune as opposed to arranging how much do you think of it as a lead sheet first and then arranging that lead sheet or there are some tunes that just wouldn't work as a lead sheet i think of a lot of a lot of some jim mcneely tunes you know or just more orchestrally based things you know it's like it's hard to or even just classical music in general mm-hmm. it's hard to reduce that through to composed a, music it's through composed yeah, yeah. music yeah so well, do you have yeah i mean you have obviously there's different ways to approach it your thoughts on that i would almost always fault toward writing it as a big band chart and not a lead sheet huh. um i had written some tunes that i made into big band charts but most of the time when i'm writing a big band chart it's for a big band mm-hmm. so i would fault not as a negative thing but i would lean towards writing it uh, complicated enough or involved enough that it would be hard to lead sheet it. Right. And I thought it was hilarious when, I don't know what volume it was, when the new real, uh, the legal real books came out yeah. uh-huh. and there was Murray yeah. Schneider stuff in there. You know, it was like... Really? Yeah. It was I like Greenpeace and all these incredible tunes. You huh. know, of course, they are four pages in the in the real book. Right. But I had no idea. Yeah, somehow they, in one of those volumes, it might be two, you know, the huh. ones that Cher did. Uh, S-H-E-R, not... C-H-E-R. Right. right. I don't know if she had it. I mean, she was hip, but I don't think she was that hip. <laughs> so, I don't know. I would have to, I would have to, um, if I'm writing a tune, I would have to tell myself that it's a tune. Because almost sure. everything I wrote for a long, long time were big band charts. I wasn't writing sextet things for fun. I wasn't writing, you know, small group stuff at all, unless it was just for fun. Like most of the stuff I got paid for was larger works. So I would say oh, the vast majority of the time I would write it uh, as a big band chart when I was composing. And if I did do a lead sheet, yeah, I'd have to do it on the back end of it, for better or for worse. This is something that I think about often because, you know, most of us who arrange or whatever, we, we're also instrumentalists on some level. 
did you ever feel like there was a time when you got that switch from being trumpet player to feeling like, you know, I really would want to be primarily a writer? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's another good question. Early 90s for me. So into perspective, I'm trying to think how old I was. Late 20s, I guess, when I was studying with Mike Crotty in D.C. I was here at UNT, but I'd go back for the summers and study with Mike. It dawned on me that I was a writer, and it was such a thrilling moment to consider myself a writer. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a writer. Because it was definitely the primary focus of what I was doing. And really, I mean, I was, well, life was always up and down. But I was really down when my trumpet playing started going down. But fortunately, when that happened, my interest in writing and my, I hate to say success, my experiences in writing were going on, on an upward trend. So it was, it was a neat juxtaposition of one thing falling away when another thing was accruing at, at a very rapid pace. So yeah, yeah, I still consider myself a writer, absolutely. I mean, I still play. I played yesterday, but I'm not a player. And I think sometimes uh, in that sense, I really love Maria Schneider even more because I know she's a piano player, but you're going to have to search pretty far to find her performances of her or recordings of her playing piano. Brooke Meyer, great player. Piano yeah. and trombone, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Jim McNeely, wonderful piano player. <coughs> you know, John Hollenbeck, great drummer. Absolutely. You know, Neil, that guy could play. You know, Steve Wiest, whoever, all, all the guys, even yeah. North Texas guys, if we go back, I mean, Liam Breeden played clarinet, right? Right, of course. Well enough to perform. Um, so oftentimes I feel bad. Yeah, sad. Piano. Sammy. Now, Sammy's another guy, though. Sammy uh-huh. Nesco, he was a trombone player. Right. Uh, yeah. But he hasn't played in a long, as long as we've been alive. So that's another shining beacon of hope for me. Because I really, I, I, do, I do often feel badly that I don't play. Hmm. But my only mm-hmm. consolation or my own, the only way to console myself is the fact that I've written for 20 years and I got a ton of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can make money and it helped me get the job I have now. Um, I still do play, but I'm not a player. Sure, sure. Oh my gosh, that sounds awful. Oh no! <laughs> I'm gonna be. I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna get the band back together. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I was talking to Maria the other day, my wife, uh, about Denton itself, which I think is such a beautiful place. Yeah. And I said, you know, I want to be able to take my flugelhorn into where Drew's playing and play a couple tunes. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And so that, that's my goal is to to get it. You know, get it to a point back where I could, you know. Feel comfortable. You definitely can. It's a matter of um, focus. So, as, when you were done with with college at at North Texas, what was your next step? Well, um, I spent a year after I graduated just freelancing. Okay. Um, and I took every. It. I, I was definitely under my own guidance of take every gig that comes to you. Mm-hmm. So I was a trumpet player. I played with Guy Lombardo's band. I toured. Really, the world with him. I did a cruise ship. Really? In South America. Yeah, Didn't we did. That. That's awesome. Oh, all over the States. Yeah, I was, played second trumpet and was one of the road awesome. managers for Guy Lombardo. Al Pearson, who's still around. He lives in Dallas, was a leader of that group. Um, I played with Charlie Stewart, another big band leader uh, in Waco. So I, I was playing a lot. Did you write charts for them too? I did not. All, all the Guy Lombardo stuff, we played the authentic stuff. Sure. And Charlie Stewart just played the standard stuff. Mm-hmm. But I did, there was a group, Dennis Demetzenaire, who was also still in Dallas. He had a salsa band called Sul Caribe. So I did a ton of salsa arrangements for him. Fun. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens. Wow. 
you know, I would transcribe lead uh, transcribe records from folk singers that didn't write music. They wanted to get published, you know, uh, sure. anything that came, mm-hmm. anything, trumpet-wise or writing-wise, mm-hmm. or copy work. I did some copy work for Bob Kerno when early finale, you know, for me, ni- like 95, 96. So anything that came up, I took. And my wife was in grad school at the time, so we needed the money also. So we were just kind of scuffling. Just We had a two-bedroom, uh, one-bedroom apartment in Dallas because she was at SMU. And those were exciting times, but they were pretty scary too because I had no idea what was going to happen. Fortunately, about a year after I graduated, the Airmen of Note, well, the staff arranging position opened up with the Air Force Band. Mike Crotty had told me about it, and uh, he'd always joked when we knew each other earlier that I was going to replace him, which I thought was hilarious. I, I really, that never crossed my mind. I didn't think I was prepared for that at all. And then you did. <laughs> and then I did. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Great. But we overlapped for about a year and a half in the Air Force Band, which was nice. But that was, that was uh, at that time, when the job opened up, Mike was still there. So it was an arranger, a generic arranger. It wasn't just for the Airman of Note. So I had to demonstrate concert band, orchestra, voice, strings, which I hadn't done much of, but I got it together enough to convince them that I at least had the potential to do it all. Yeah. It was a long process, but when I finally got offered the gig, we were expecting our first kid. So it was really a no-brainer to enlist. Similar to being a writer, realizing I was a writer, that first week of basic training, looking in the mirror and looking at myself with short hair and these weird camouflage yeah. uniforms. Yeah. Like, what have I gotten myself into? Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. 20 years of that, and here we are, you know? So when you were in the Air Force writing position, so you were writing for all sorts of situations, right? I mean, what what was that like? Um, it was a combination of, not boredom, it, it really went up and down. Okay. There were times where they couldn't pay me enough to write. And there were times where like, I can't believe they're paying me for this. Because there, there would be, I can say it now, and I don't think it's the same. Even when I was getting out, it, it was changing. But there would be weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks where I didn't have to write anything. I'd have to go in. I'd still have to be a military musician. But then there would be one week when I have four big band charts due. Oh, no. So it would be either on or off. That's that's a day of char- that's two days of chart. Oh yeah, basically. Well, oh, including the nights too. Yeah, of course. Well, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Right. Twenty-four. Yes. Sure. Wow. Forty-eight and, uh, hours per thirty-six hours per chart, basically. And a half. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it was it was up and down. It was something I got used to. Yeah. But I loved I loved that challenge. I loved the challenge of a deadline and having to write. Kurt Rosenwinkel came and. Uh, I did three charts in a week for him. And Kurt Rosenwinkel stuff is heavy. Yeah, you know? really And that heavy. was so fun, and I loved it. So that was, it started where I did concert band stuff. I did some, uh, some I always did stuff for the string ensemble or the studio orchestra. The last 10 years, the vast majority of my stuff was for the Airman of Note, which was my preference and my forte. Um, I could do it all, and I loved writing mm-hmm. for strings, goodness. The concert band still boggles my mind. Huh. I really? don't, yeah. You got euphoniums and stuff like what the hell? <laughs> what the hell is that thing? You know, I mean, is it a French horn? Is it a tuba? I mean, the saxophone. I love the color of the of the euphonium. Man. I love. Yeah, I don't. I just don't know what to do with it's it. It's not common in, in most other ensembles. Yeah, I just don't. I still don't know, and maybe I haven't done it enough. How it, how the hell it fits in? You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. what what is it? I jo- mean, I know it's beautiful. Uh, Jaws. That's my go-to <laughs> euphonium. Oh yeah, right. Put it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Or is that horns? Maybe I'm about to make myself a fool. We'll we find might out have to about edit an this hour. out. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's horns. No, I, I think it's. Oh, I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah, we'll find really out. want to know. <laughs> well, 
And so writing for a symphony orchestra is something I love doing. Oh, and I had a chance to do it with, um, with the Air Force Band, but also a lot on the side as well. Okay. I did tons of stuff for Doc Severinsen. It's pops orchestra. You know? So fortunately for me, there's always a rhythm section, which yeah. makes it a lot easier. But yeah, it was it was fun. It was um it was always an adventure. The best part of the job was when we had guest artists, so I got to write their music and and be on stage conducting with them. But other than that, basically, I mean, folks say, well, how many charts did you have to write a week, or how many charts did you have to do a year? It's hard to say, you know, because sometimes you really had to push the deadlines, and sometimes there was nothing at all. Yeah. Well, our, our, we we have a couple questions, and one of them is about writing the craft of writing for guest artists. Oh yeah. <clears throat> and you've had a lot of experience doing yeah. that. Maybe you could tell us some of your favorites. I mean, you said you mentioned Kurt um that you that you got to write for and yeah. work with. Well, Kurt Elling and Kurt Rosenwinkel. Oh, uh, um, yeah, I meant Rosenwinkel. Which, yes. Yeah, sure, gotcha. Well, another great thing about North Texas, and I'm not just saying that cuz I'm an employee, but when I was a student, I got to write for Freddie Hubbard, I got to write for Randy Brecker, I got oh, to write for geez. Michael Brecker, which was incredible. Do you mind if I ask what uh what tunes what yeah. charts you did for him for for freddie i did intrepid fox it's still in the library and I, it's funny and neil was so brilliant it has a big long middle section where it goes into a halftime latin thing um, and then it goes into a double time swing and then it goes back to the regular intrepid fox um, but neil for the rec for the concert he cut out that whole middle section uh, <laughs> which is pretty funny uh, but uh so yeah i did intrepid fox uh, for michael brecker i did Song for Bilbao, which right. is on oh, my sure, record. Sure. African Skies. And I just lost the other one. But I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. Sure. Uh, Randy Brecker, I did uh, Above and Below, and I did uh, another one of his tunes. But it was a great experience, especially Freddie, because I was only, a, that was my second year there. Wow. And I was the only one that got, no, no, let me get this straight now. Yeah, I was the only student who wrote for Freddie. Scott Covey and I wrote for Michael Brecker. I think Mike Pope actually did a chart for that concert also. Oh, cool. On Suspone, maybe. Uh, anyway, the that was a little different because I was just shooting in the dark. You know, I didn't really have contact with those people before the gig. Mm -hmm. Neil said, "Hey, arrange song for Bilbao." Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. He knew it was a great tune for a big band. You know, he knew yeah. it would work. But when I got with the Air Force Band, it was, "Hey, we have Nicholas Payton coming as our fall artist." Great. I'd go out and buy a bunch of Nicholas Payton CDs. I'd go through 10 or 12 CDs, check off tunes that I thought would be good big band charts of his compositions. Um, and then I'd get on the phone. I'd say, hey, Nicholas, this is Alan Baylock. I'm with the Air Force Band. Hey, I'm going to be doing some writing for you. Do you have any ideas of what you'd like me to do? He said, yeah, I got this new record out. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've checked it out. Oh, yeah. What do you want to do? Oh, I was thinking about blah, blah, blah. Uh, Ziga Boogaloo. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. And what else you want? Um, how about Softly, C minor? Perfect. Yeah. That's all the information I need, you know? Yeah. That's the best case scenario. Cool. Um, the other side of the scenarios are, it's, I love working with singers. Mm. You know, I love writing for singers. I love singers in big band, uh, in front of a big band. But it's typically, hey, I did this arrangement, and it's basically an orchestration project. It's yes. expanding yeah. their yes, tune, yes. their recording for a big or sometimes band. reducing it from a... Orchestra. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes reducing it also. Yeah. Which is fun in itself. Yes. Uh, I, I like that thrill. I like the challenge. I did some stuff for Nina Freelon. I felt good about. I felt good about the stuff I did for Tierney Sutton because her stuff was so pretty anyway. So I, I I wrote for probably a dozen singers too, um, but it was it was a thrill to interact with them before the gig to get their input mm. about what they thought, and really rarely, but on occasion they would ask me to arrange a tune that I knew just wouldn't work. 
easily. And I only had to get burned once until I learned that I can actually say, hey, you know, I don't think that one's going to work. I won't say who it was, but I did do a, a very poorly written song for a big band and it it just didn't work. It worked for the concert and then it's sitting you know, on the shelf somewhere. But uh, the interaction with the artist itself was fun. When I wrote for a doc, it was the same thing. You got to you get to talk and uh, I, I got probably an hour of conversations with Doc and I talking about music and uh, what he would like me to write. And Because Doc had specific ideas also. Sure. Right. I'm sure some of the others did too, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And which was fun. Um, well, it was Doc Severinsen, so of course <laughs> it was fun. But that Nicholas Payton story, that's it, a true story. And that's one of my favorites because he just gave me f- complete reign to do whatever I wanted. And that's one thing that uh, we did on that gig. And then we performed it with um, that same arrangement with... Uh, Sean Jones at the North okay. Texas Fall yeah. Concert just uh, this past fall. One o'clock recorded it the, all. The big reharm yes. on, on the Softly. That's right. Yeah. That's where I was going with uh, try to reharm everything as a minor 11. Right, you know? right, 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 <laughs> right, 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 right. The other option was reharming everything as a major 7 flat 5, which I got into thanks to Slide Hampton. Oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing and hope to see you next time. <laughs>